A young woman longs for marriage. She finds her station in life does not present her with many prospects, maybe none, honestly. And slowly she begins to lose faith in God's goodness. Then she meets an attractive man at work. He's unusually kind to her. He's educated. He showers. And they grow close. He tells her that he's a Christian, if pressed, but she's quite aware that he's not a born-again follower of Christ. He has no interest in the Scriptures or prayer. Occasionally, he'll come with her to church if she begs him. And then the day arrives, and he asks, will you marry me? And her conscience accuses her, but her heart leaps at the opportunity. The expectation is beyond what she can stand, and she blurts out, yes, I will. The years pass. Her husband, now an avowed atheist. He can hardly hide his antipathy for God, for his word, and even for his people. Those foolish Christians, he says. Her husband loves money. He loves himself. He loves his sin. And he grows increasingly unloving toward his wife. Then one day, with broken heart, she cries out to God, I despise your lordship. I spurn the counsel of godly people in marrying this man. I sinned. I rejected your will for my life. Filled with new resolve, she responds by divorcing her husband. She begins searching Christian dating sites, determined to marry a believer and enjoy the life that she's convinced God always wanted her to have from the very beginning. Now let's stand back in analysis. Did this woman disobey God by marrying her husband? Did she choose a path against God's will? I think we would say, as we know the Scriptures, as we love Christ as Savior, we would say, yes, she did. She failed the Lord this way. But then we ask the question, is she now obeying God by divorcing her husband, ending the relationship with this atheist that despises God, and seeking a born-again follower of Christ as her husband? We would again have to say on the basis of Scripture, no. She's not doing the right thing here. This is not the right response. I just take this scenario as we would counsel this woman. We'll come back to her at a couple places here perhaps. But in this scenario and in a thousand like it, we recognize our potential to sin by obeying God on His terms. Or I should say, by obeying God on our terms. We sin by, quote-unquote, obeying God on our terms. 
We can fool ourselves to believe we are obeying God's will when we are actually just relying on ourselves. When we attempt really to control our circumstances and not to obey God, but really ultimately to play God and to act as if we know what is right and how we can take over. And this brings us back to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, and I am without power here. Do you have something there, a slide? Do you? It is on the podium. Wow, that's great. There it is. It's hiding. Sorry about that. I should locate that before I get up here, shouldn't I? Ever learning. (laughs) Thank you. Bear with me. Here we go. Numbers 14. Chapters 13 and 14 hold together. And it would really be ideal if we could have had a two-hour sermon and taken all of that together. I didn't have the courage to try to pull it off in a short time. But for those that haven't been part of the last two weeks as we've considered chapters 13 and 14, it leaves you a little bit at a disadvantage as we come into the middle of a narrative, of a scene that really should be coupled together here in these chapters. But coming to verse 26 of chapter 14, let me just get a little bit of a running head start for those that have not been with us for the last past few weeks. But God has spoken his word about this promised land. He has promised this land four centuries earlier, 400 years earlier, to the offspring of Abraham. And says in Exodus 6, just to take one example, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. There are no questions. This is what God intends to do. Now, Israel, as we've traced the journey from the book of Exodus uh, to this point, has made their way through the Red Sea, from Goshen in Egypt, down to Mount Sinai, the giving of the law there, and then have worked their way up in the book of Numbers to Kadesh, where they are on the south end of the promised land. Remember now chapter 13, verses 1 to 16. You can maybe just scan it there in your Bible. 1 to 16, the spies are chosen. In verses 17 through 20, Moses briefs them on the mission. They're going to go into this land and, and see it. Look at it, discern what's there. And so the spies take off, they go northward all the way through the stretch of the land, and then they return southward and they report what they have found. Verses 21 through 24, they survey the land. Verses 25 through 33, the spies bring a negative report. We can't do this. We know God's promise, but we cannot Come into this place and destroy these people. Take this land. It is beyond us. We cannot pull it off. In chapter 14, verses 1 through the first part of verse 10, the nation then joins the spies in their rejection of God's will. It gets so bad that they gather around Moses and Aaron and they're going to kill them. The intention's in their heart, the murder is in their heart, they're going to take them out. These leaders are leading us into this place where we're going to die, they need to die. And right at the last moment, God comes in, intercedes for them, intervenes for them, and then proposes to destroy the nation. 
This is what the nation deserves. Verses 10 through 12. God threatens this destruction, but then in verses 13 to 19, Moses intercedes for the forgiveness of the nation and God's glory. Forgive this people for the glory of your name. And he shows himself to be the ideal intercessor uh, in many respects, though we look for a greater to come. In verses 20 through 25 then of chapter 14, God does indeed pardon Israel. But God also issues a blistering rebuke of her and of her unbelievable unbelief in him. Verses 26 through 38, as we come now to that section of this whole ordeal, we see information that is fairly repetitive. And I'd like to picture it this way, if if this would be possible. Uh, Maybe something like, you have a judge who hearing what a defendant has done, hearing what this criminal before him has done, gives a blistering rebuke. And you see this once in a while. It shows up in the media what this judge said to this person who hurt so many people. And they kind of, kind of God almost emotionally speaking out in anger against Israel and saying, you have broken faith with me. As he then really, not so much talking directly to them, but almost as if he's directing the attention to the attorney. Moses, so to speak, standing there, defending Israel, praying for Israel, and God in reaction, in anger, says, this people have failed me. They've been unfaithful. In verse 25, he dismisses them into the wilderness, but then in verses 26 through 38, it's almost like the judge goes to the chambers, comes back out, And now, having given this blistering rebuke to the attorney, now is going to just give the formal, somber sentence. Here it is. Here is where Israel's sin has taken her. And so we look at God sentencing Israel to die in the wilderness. I sent two copies today. The first one beat out the second one, which was right. So ignore the title. I apologize. I had it on there, but it didn't get through the internet here. But uh, that's all last week's title. But it works uh, for chapter 14. But that should be verses uh, 26 through 45. So God, first of all, sentences Israel to die in the wilderness. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long... Shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. This takes us back to chapter 14 and verse 2, where the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land, to fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Here's their grumbling the, as, we, as they are quoted here in these verses. Well, Israel should be singing God's praises and rejoicing in His provision. Instead, she murmurs against God. She doubts His love. She doubts His goodness. And so God passes just sentence upon Israel in verse 28 
Verse 28, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. What have they said in his hearing? That's verses 2 and 3 and even 4 of chapter 14. That's what they've said in his hearing. What they've said is, oh, that we had died in the wilderness instead of coming to this land. That's what we would have preferred, is just to die in the wilderness Forget this whole thing. Well, God says here, you're going to get your wish. You're going to get what you demand in your infidelity. Verse 29. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. No one shall come into the land No one shall enter this land to dwell where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So the judgment here falls specifically on the warriors that we saw mustered in chapter 1. Many other Israelites would obviously die in the wilderness. I mean, they're going to be here for 38 more years now, 40 total, having come out of Egypt, but 38 more from this point. So a lot of them are just going to die of natural causes. But God does not pass judgment here specifically on the Levites. He does not pass judgment specifically on women nor on children, in fact, anyone under 20 years of age, any of the men under 20 years of age. He does not pass judgment on them. This is a specific judgment against the warriors who refuse to obey God on his terms. They rejected the land that he swore to give Israel. Where Exodus 6-8 says, I will give you this land, they said, we don't want it. And they led the nation. They were the ones that were to go into the land that had the power to follow through on God's provision and take this. And they said, we don't want it. Those individuals, God says, will die here in the wilderness. They said, we'd rather die in the wilderness. They get what they want. But God is not done. He now disciplines them in the opposite direction. They ask for death in the wilderness. They get it. But in their arrogant grumbling against God, they also prophesied about their children. Remember that? What is it? They're going to die. They're never going to make it in this land. They're going to be devoured by these people. On that point, God continues, verse 31, but your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. And now God circles back to stress the certainty of this coming judgment, verse 32. But as for you, so your children are going to go in against your prophecy, but as for you, verse 32, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. That's the identical phrase as verse 29. Your dead bodies shall drop. Their corpses will drop in the wilderness. And verse 33, back to the children, your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the day of, here it is, your dead bodies lie in the wilderness. 
until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. So these children, they're going to live like Bedouins, moving from place to place to find pasture for their flocks. In some sense, they will be moving from place to place to find food and sustenance and water as they work around this area for the next generation. They should have grown up amidst the rich pasture lands and the olive groves and the vineyards and the fields of grain ripe for harvest. That's where they should have lived their lives and grown up as children. But God says they're going to be with you out here in the wilderness because of your sin. It is your, notice it here in verse 33, it's your faithlessness. Their faithlessness stalled God's blessing upon their children in the land. The Hebrew word for faithlessness is literally fornications. Your infidelity to me has led to the harm of your children. This isn't where they should grow up, but they will. But when you say they're going to die, they'll live. And they'll enter into that land of promise. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Third time that he's made that very statement. Verse 34. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. He gives them credit for time served, the two years basically since they've left Egypt. But overall it's going to be 40 years of discipline, symbolically a year for each day that they were in the promised land that they will never, ever forget. I, the Lord, verse 35, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end and there they shall die. There their bodies will drop. Fourth time that he mentions it. So this is no invitation here. Sometimes we we see this in the text of Scripture But it's not the case here where this is an invitation to repent. Nineveh will be destroyed, but she repents and God does not destroy. The understanding being, if she repents, she won't be destroyed. That's not the case here. God is making crystal clear this judgment has been decided. And as I have sworn by my name to give this land to the children of Israel, I swear by my name that you will not enter it. Let's let that settle in because it's important as the narrative unfolds. He's declaring sentence. There is nothing now that Israel can do to reverse that decision. Verse 36. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up that bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. We don't have specifics here to satisfy our curiosity, but God apparently just strikes these spies dead, whether just on the spot, all of them together, or over a very short period of time. They lose even the privilege of living out their lives with their families in the wilderness. These representative heads who led the nation against the will of God, 
die. They die in infamy. They're remembered as the spies who discouraged Israel, who led the nation into rebellion against the Lord. So ironically, entering into the promised land did cost them their lives. They thought it would be the Canaanite soldiers that took them out. It was God that took them out because of their rebellion against Him, because of their unbelief. Remember verse 10, God had not stopped them, had God not stopped them in their tracks, they would have killed Moses and Aaron. So these are murderers at heart, as they would have killed those leaders had not God intervened. But now the sovereign God executes them, removing them by plague, so they no longer plague Israel with their unbelief. There was, of course, two exceptions. Verse 38, of those men who went, of the twelve that went out, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb remained alive. So those two were spared this discipline, of course, because they did trust God. So this is God's sentence upon Israel. And it's somber stuff. It's severe, hard discipline against Israel because of her unbelief. We come now to a a section of response at verse 39 where Israel, and I put in quotations here, obeys God in blundering self-reliance. Israel obeys God. Notice how Israel responds, first of all, by mourning her sentence, verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. They pitied themselves. They felt sorrowful for what had happened. They didn't like being in this position. Suddenly the land they feared entering, the land they wanted nothing to do with, looks really, really good. In their fearful, untrusting infidelity to God, they had a lot of negative things to say about the land, and they begged for the wilderness. But now that they get what they want, they don't want what they get. And so Israel, again, quotation marks, repents. Verse 40. They see the error they've made. Verse 40, and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. They see what they've done wrong. They understand it. They want to reverse it. We admit that our circumstances are our fault for not believing God. Now they're pretty nebulous about their sin. They don't really get into the specifics about what it is by nature, but they do admit we've done wrong. And here we stand, ready to enter the land, ready to conquer. We will go up to the land that God has promised. You see it there in verse 40, important phrase, We will go up. Now Moses warns against Israel's folly now in verses 41 and following. He comes in and says, I see what you're doing. I understand the situation. You don't understand the situation. You can't do this. Verse 41. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up. So if you remember 1330, 
Chapter 13, verse 30, Caleb exhorts them to do what? Let us go up. What do the spies say? We cannot go up. Verse 31. Then chapter 14, verse 40, the spies, never mind, we will go up. And Moses says, no, you will not go up. You cannot go up. Do not do this. Continuing verse 42, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. The Lord is not with you in this, people. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. This conquest, Moses says in so many words, never depended upon you, ever. And nothing's changed. And so we can say to ourselves as God's followers, as His people, no conquest of the flesh, no conquest of life circumstances, no faith endeavor that we undertake ever depends on us, on our power, our strength, our wisdom, our good looks. If we have any, which I don't, but none of it depends on that. Never has, never will. And that's what Moses is saying here. This is not depending on you. You couldn't beat these people by yourself. You can't now. The critical issue was always and is just as certainly now whether or not God is with you. And Israel, he's not. You're on your own here. And you already know what that means. This is a suicide mission. You thought it was before, and it actually is now. Stay here. Don't go up into the land. Those words, would we say anything else to this woman that we've talked about? Fictional woman? But will we say anything else to her? Wouldn't we say the very same things that Moses is saying to Israel here? Our lives interlock and connect as we deal with these matters. Would we say anything else to our young woman as she proposes to divorce her husband and find another? We'd say, don't do this. God commands you to remain with your husband, to graciously draw him to Christ as you sacrificially love him for Christ's sake. God's word speaks to this. And don't venture out in self-reliance like this. You cannot fix the past by, quote-unquote, obeying God on your own terms. You're not going to fix the past that way. Such obedience is really disobedience because God is not with you in this. Wouldn't we say that to her out of love, out of concern for her? And Moses says that out of concern for these warriors. His impassioned plea here is God is not in this, so don't do it. Better to live in the wilderness with God than anywhere without Him. But Israel simply expands her unfaithfulness. Verse 44, but they presumed to go up. There it is again. 
We have to go up. We can't go up. We're going to go up. Don't you dare go up. They go up. They go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Wow, let's sit on that for a moment. Can you see them in your mind's eye disappearing as you look at their backs? They go charging up the hill, raising the battle cry, warriors on the attack, going after the land that God promised to our ancestor Abraham. And you know what's so chilling about this scene is what's in their rearview mirror. It's what they are turning their back on. And what is that? First of all, it's the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant over which the glory of God's presence hovered. It's the central focus of the people of God in their worship of Him. That's behind them, not with them. Secondly, the glory cloud that hovers over the tabernacle and indicated when and where God wanted His people to move. Chapter 9, 15-23, remember we looked at that? When the cloud lifted and moved, Israel moved. That cloud is in their rearview mirror. They're going into this conquest without the glory of God, without His presence, without His leading. And the third thing that's behind them they've turned their back on is Moses. As they direct their attack northward and upward into the terrain of the promised land, Moses is back in his tent. He's not going anywhere. I have I learned a lot. I've had the scene emblazoned on my young mind for many years now, but I remember watching a Philadelphia 76ers basketball game back in the day. And they had a man by the name of Julius Irving, who was an amazing player. And in this game, as I'm watching this game, a fight broke out. I mean, these guys are like literally swinging punches and hitting each other, and there's mayhem everywhere on the court. And the camera pans away from the fight and it focuses on Julius Irving. He's on the other end of the court, sitting down resting. I've never forgotten that scene. He's like, this is the stupidest thing that human beings could do. It's not going to accomplish any good. It's not going to help me win this game. I'll take a rest here and not get in the middle of it. I remember that scene as I think of Moses. That's where Moses is here. He's just laid back. He's not going with them. He's not going. This is going to accomplish absolutely nothing other than disaster. He wants no part of it. You've abandoned God in your decisions, and now He's abandoned you. He's not in this, warriors. The spies had looked at those thick, tall stone walls. They had craned their necks looking up at those armored giants. And they said, we cannot do this. 
And now, abandoned by God, these warriors look at those same walls, eye up those same giants, and go charging in. What does this prove? It proves that they could have done it the right way the first time. They've got faith now, but it's faith in themselves. It's faith in, we will fix this our way. We will take care of our circumstances. We will get out of this situation in our own strength. Relying upon themselves, they run into solving things their own way. And it proves that the same faithless self-reliance then still plagues them. Earlier, it was a refusal to go where God was taking them. Now, it's a self-reliant effort to go where God is not taking them. And we can tag into these two orientations in many different ways. But what it teaches us certainly is this, that no sinful act of disobedience against God is ever fixed by a sinful act of correction. No sinful act of disobedience against God is ever fixed by a sinful act of correction. No moral failure to rely upon God is ever fixed by a self-reliant scheme to change our circumstances. So let us take this message to heart. I mean, this is one of the beauties of working verse by verse through Scripture. I don't think anybody would have designed such a message. It's not a truth that we would think is particularly helpful. But it is helpful. It is God's Spirit teaching us this to take to heart this message. Faithfulness can cut two ways. Sorry, wrong word. Faithlessness can cut two ways. One, we can refuse to obey God and thus sacrifice His blessings upon our obedience. That's just infidelity to Him. His word takes me this way, I say not going. But there's that other way. We can also go about trying to obey God on our own terms, in our own strength, depending on ourselves, when God is not with us. We may feel like we're doing a really good thing. We may feel like we're mixing it up with something that's important, like we're fixing our circumstances, but he's not there. And like Moses, there's probably some godly people that are taking a rest somewhere and aren't with you. They're not with me. In those moments, we need to recognize this danger. In a manner of speaking, in such times, obeying God becomes sin. Now, it's not really obeying God, but we see it as obedience to God, as going God's way. I mean, wasn't Israel going God's way? This was the land he had given to these people. But they weren't going his way. He wasn't with them. And I would hope that it creates a craving in us that he would go with me. That I would, in fact, go with him. That I would wait upon his leading and his direction. That I would seek the counsel of his people. That I would track forward where I should go. So as we bring back to our young wife, 
There was a day when seeking a godly husband was a worthy goal. It was God's will. It's what He wanted for her. That day is gone. Now that she is married, God's will is different. And she needs to submit to it. It can be very hard when we recognize what our sin has done and how it has harmed our future. It can be a hard place. I want to come back to that in a few moments. But as we work our way there, looking back just for a moment at a larger picture, is that we're called here to live by faith in God, to live every day depending on His truth, His word, His direction. And we see that very point drawn out in the New Testament as we see application drawn from places such as Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. He does not reward those who go about it the best way they can figure it out and break His law and do their own thing. But he does reward those who honor his word many times against what others would counsel and what reason might seem to dictate. He's told us this. In chapter 3 of this book, the author says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is possible, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief is a killer in God's economy. It's an absolute killer. His word says one thing, and I believe another. That's a recipe for death. His word says one thing, and I do something different. It's a recipe for death. His word says this, and I don't do it. I'm inviting disaster. Unbelief is a killer in God's economy. And so, as the proverb puts it, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. To lean on our own understanding is to go against what God's Word says. Sometimes it is indeed to go against what God's people are saying and how they may encourage us to do what is right. Moses exhorted and counseled and pleaded with Israel, don't do this. But they ignored Moses because they ignored God. Well, that brings us to the consideration then of one who would say, I've ruined my life. 
by unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness has messed my life up such that it's never going to be the same again. It's ruined. Not really. In fact, I'd say emphatically no. Not if you're a follower of Christ. Not if you're God's child. It's not all over. It's not ruined. Now there's a hard reality that we have to face. And that is that you may be in the wilderness and you may live out the rest of your days there. And we may say in counsel to this woman in in her trial, you got to remain with this man. That's not going to be easy. Yes, you have kissed goodbye all kinds of blessings upon your life by marrying him, but you need to stay with him. This is God's counsel to you. But you've not ruined your life irreparably. The wilderness with God's presence is better by far than trying to take things into your own hands and relying on your own ingenuity. Go with God in the wilderness if that's where your sin has taken you. But don't abandon Him. Remember 14.18, the Lord is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He'll by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Don't go too far with that and read too much into it, but just what we see happening with Israel in the wilderness. But he is a God, verse 19, of steadfast love who forgives his people. So don't say, my life is ruined because God's in the wilderness. Be faithful to him there. If you weren't faithful to him to go into the promised land, whatever that would look like in your life, and you broke his law, rejected his will, and are suffering those consequences, don't think you can somehow get back there. Just realize that God's presence is in the wilderness. And it might be 40 years. And it might be longer. But he'll be there with you. He loves you. He pardons he forgives those who walk with him in trust and dependence. In fact, it's interesting. We come to chapter 15, which just absolutely destroys all kinds of commentators. They start having apoplexy immediately when they see chapter 15. Suddenly we go into laws on sacrifices. And it had to be a different author, and it had to be a different thing going on, and this doesn't make any sense, and why on earth would you follow a narrative like that with sacrifices? I think it fits perfectly well. First of all, it follows the pattern of the Pentateuch, which continues to mix together narrative and law. We need sacrifice after chapters 13 and 14. Israel needs purification And so without delving into chapter 15 here today, it does remind us that in our sin, when we have rejected the will of God, when we have gone down a wilderness path because of our disobedience, that Jesus is our sacrifice. He has done the work to restore us to fellowship with the Father whose laws we have broken time and time again 
whose blessing we have spurned through our disobedience, but there is a sacrifice for sin, and ultimately it is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one who met the penalty of sin with his own death, bearing our sins and giving life to his people. Yes, in this life it's possible the consequences of our sins may prove irreversible. Because of our sins, sometimes God's word now is different. And we've got to adjust to what his counsel is from this point forward. But if you have come to know Christ as your Savior from sin, if you've come to know that his death paid the penalty of your sin, if you understand that He's come to resurrection power and you have embraced Him as your Lord and Savior, if you're willing to keep on trusting His Word as truth and to seek His presence with joy, then know this. Know this, Christian. Our loving Heavenly Father can our loving Heavenly Father can spread a feast in the wilderness. He can. He can spread a feast in the wilderness for those willing to abide in His presence wherever that presence takes them. If you come today in unbelief, You have not come to embrace by faith this message in Jesus crucified and risen. You're failing to trust God at His Word. May I say and remind you also that unbelief is the greatest danger to your soul. Act in faith today as you will want to act when you stand before His sovereign throne in eternity. He provides a feast for His people. A feast of the soul as we walk in obedience. Embrace that presence. Walk in it. Seek to trust His Word. We're all called to this. May God aid us.